Welcome back, Warhorse Podcast, episode 30. Monday, the 13th of June, 2022. The context is I've got a new son. My son made it. He traveled across fucking space time. His mother carried him perfectly and now he sits with her and pretty much everything else pales in comparison to that in the past two weeks not two weeks I mean no need to be too specific but let's say two weeks, I have experienced sense of fullness and gratitude. I think what, what uh, church-going types call feeling blessed to a greater degree and with more lasting intensity than ever before. The website is goldengoatguild.net, Golden Goat Guild on Instagram. Follow, like, subscribe, throw money at me. There's a crypto donation button on the website. Um, Patreon is where most of the stuff is happening. You can find the links in the uh, various link trees, Twitter, Instagram. Golden Goat Guild. I still have not tried searching it as um, a non-creator, you know, already logged in, but I I imagine you can find it just simply by going to Patreon. The rest of the context seems to be that The current thing is being shifted and jumbled this way and that. Supply line fuckery appears to appears to have leveled out into a place where it's both highly controllable and um there, you know, any reaction to that can be compartmentalized and shunted aside. So, personally, I'm not harboring a great deal of hope for uh, the mass awakening or, or whatever sorts of 
fantasies we um, we may still hope for. Further refining that context, context, I I perceive very little in the way of. Um, what do you call it? Organized, you know, corollary to that awakening, some sort of organized um, resistance, for lack of, of a better term. Which is, you know, not too, uh, it's not surprising. few things to to discuss before we get to our guest the plan is to break this it's a set of interviews with the writer and uh, quote Baltimore violence guy James LaFond Mr. LaFond has appeared in many episodes of the very fine podcast. Sorry for the background noise. If you knew uh, the rest of the context, you'd, you'd uh, like me, be, be grateful that there's any place at this point to record this thing. Um, it should be minimal. Not that we ever really cared before. Um, the very fine podcast, uh, Myth of the 20th Century. Mr. LaFon's been on there quite a few times. He's written something along the order of several hundred books. Um, his website, I believe, is just jameslafon.com. And I would encourage you guys to check, check that out. I just learned that... Um, Tons of his fiction is just available on that website. We discuss um, a couple, we, a bunch of his, a bunch of his work, and um, this all went down at an event that was held by an associate of Mr. Lafond, and. Uh, the invitation was titled an, an Affair of Honor. And you can read about this on his website. Right now it's posted up near the top. Essentially invitees, invitees, those who were invited, um, were asked to provide a basic rundown of their skill level in a variety of martial arts, machete dueling, stick fighting, boxing, grappling, knife fighting, etc. And um, our weights size, age, these sorts of things. And this was in an effort to create an experience where all of 
the participants had an opportunity to actually fight, but also uh, return to their jobs and families and not have to call EMS, which, which was the case, as, um, as we'll get into later. And we'll talk more about Mr. LaFond and um, the affair of honor uh, as this episode proceeds, these next two episodes proceed. The housekeeping bit, um, main thing is I have, I have gotten the invite finally from uh, Mr. Daniel Winkler. So I'm going to be heading over to that factory, I hope this week. The particulars were a little loose. Uh, but I think that likely Mr. Winkler is well into the um, the rubric of uh, the plan is no plan. So I, I have nothing but total confidence that I will just show up and he will also be there. And I should have an update, therefore, on the much-anticipated operator collaboration with Winkler Knives. So... My apologies that it's taken this long. It wasn't, it had everything to do with a pretty massive manufacturing operation, at least in knife making terms, uh, being shuffled over to a new location and expanded. So that's good news there. The other bit of housekeeping is, uh, I will pull it up here so that there's no confusion. Um, the navigator, shit, wrong way. The navigator course on the website. I've had some, some very serious interest and um, some of my thinking on, on the logistics aspect of it, like how do, we, how do we make it happen, is, you know, again, in our context. So um, it looks like diesel is going to go to probably at least eight bucks this summer. I think in some places of the country it might have already arrived there. But thinking more in terms of a national average. Coinciding with that, you know, we might we might then see um, a little bit of upheaval. Um, a little bit of pain and suffering, at least that pain and suffering being dialed up once again, as mentioned before, in a, in a somewhat calibrated fashion. I think that's what these past two, three years have been all about, is just 
getting all of the pieces in place. You know, get your war looting going. Uh, ramp the, the, the mass, the level of anxiety coursing through the masses coast to coast um, in terms of sheer numbers to some predetermined and uh, metrics that must only come from the extension of operations like MKUltra. Um, but I feel pretty certain that, that there's <laughs> a, a folder, a file that is passed around on Monday morning and um, something like, you know, the, the atmospheric temperature of the populace. So I think that they have all of those, those borders applying pressure to the various castes, various socioeconomic brackets, tax brackets, etc. I think they have that all firmly in hand at this point. And so from here, my guess is that we're just going to see barring once again black swan or what have you christ return pardon me which is actually we're going to see a sort of methodical um very coordinated concerted series of uh valves and um gauges engaged such that outcomes are to the regime's liking. So anyway, the Navigator course, I need to travel to you at this point. And um, that may change. It may, there may be some, some opportunity to bring students in. And that and then we've got whatever, you know, seven to 10 individuals traveling. And even if they offset their costs together, it's, it's probably going to exceed the travel of one guy going to your squad, your group, what have you. And so I am adjusting what's possible on my end thinking of ways to lower those costs, my travel costs, substantially while still getting everything done that needs to get done. So I'm looking at the course now. It's a singular passage experience. It's a tracking and total survival course, custom calibrated for the unique tactical considerations skill levels and insights extant in each team or group at the time of their training. So essentially there's a framework that I'm going to place over you and you're going to inform the rest and I'm going to respond to that. And um, I encourage you to check this out and pass it on to folks who you think may be 
in need of something like this. What is a passage experience? We've been hitting on this for, I don't know, the last three or four episodes. I'm not going to derail too hard today to get back into. We, we will for sure. Um, perhaps in the next episode. There's a couple of different things lined up, so I don't know how exactly, and I never know exactly how it'll play out. The plan is no plan. The passage experience is everywhere around us at all times. And it's it seems to me to be one of these basic Theological, spiritual, ecto-physical, metaphysical, what have you, observations that is available to anybody, the most responsible, the most type A, the least responsible, the most type B, all that shit is totally fucking irrelevant. If anything... you could take any individual example of any type that quote psychology, sociology, any of the various ways that we could study human nature and behavior, any of these labels and categories are secondary to what seems to me and many others, I think, to be this basic fact of being that we, not we, not you and I, but the great conversation over the decades, and it's not their fault, but it's been their efforts and the efforts of um, malevolent actors, for sure. The, the revolutionary egregore shifting and changing and picking up this regime, picking up, dropping that name for this name or whatever for millennia plays its role, I think, and it, it sort of all comes to a nasty little pustule head in the form of uh, the various critical theories, right? I'm not going to go fucking Steven Crowder here at all, but you, you, get the, you get the idea. The tearing down um, may result in some useful index that some people can take on for some purpose or another. Meanwhile, the essentials of your experience, my experience, presumably remain. And what does that mean? And so the theory is that our experience of time and our experience of phenomena By labeling them 
we gain some ground, right? We gain some communicative advantage is the assumption. And um, that's an assumption that's rarely challenged in any way. But um, in reverie, in the ecstatic state, whether that's through fighting, um, through witnessing a child come into being, whether it's just through sheer singular plodding work over a decade, however, We have in all of these experiences this opportunity to sort of whatever, widen the floodgate, um, tune in multiple bandwidths and apprehend more broadly with less refinement, with less specificity. It's not as if the focus, if you will, of the granular, um, pixelated bit of your experience is in any way lost. It's rather, as with the psychedelic experience, the whole becomes clear. And this is all this to say that when we speak of being in time, and experience the terrifying potential here is that these divisions are the work of ants in the face of a divine colossal intelligence So I was just having this exchange, admittedly a one-sided exchange, uh, in text um, pretty much touting the, the absolute fact that King of Dogs is the best book of the past decade and that the unfortunate truth is that the reading populace by and large, already itself a very small segment of society, um, just simply those that are literate. But the, the subset within that literate segment of individuals with the tools, education, point of view, what have you, heart and mind to to understand what was accomplished in that book um, as I keep saying you know there are massive edifice pieces there that people even people who have read the book six seven ten times um, have not they've not popped for them yet um, and yeah this is 
We're going on a whole um, devil dog, James Elroy moment here to refine a point. Which is probably going to be lost on me now. Um, iron not iron not too ironically. Um, but I was just recently having this exchange where the, the possibilities of that book for, for mining appear to be damn near endless. And I know this because I built the book. I did not simply sit down in a, in a reverie, uh, you know, moment or on some deadline. I had goals that I didn't think were, had ever been attempted by anybody, but I presumed were within the grasp of the greats. And um, I took as much time and, you know, God's hand absolutely played a part. And this is not to say, I, I suppose I would still put the book out if you categorically assured me that it would never be apprehended in its, um, in its fullness. Fine. It doesn't change what is. The Navigator course is, is similar in the sense that anybody can scrap together their money and take a tactical course. Um, anybody can scrap their money together and take a, you know, outward bound or some sort of, uh, what's his name? John Bly, you know, get the, uh, the high drums out and drink some green tea with some shirtless men in the forest sort of thing. If that's what you want to do, of course, there's nothing particularly um, offensive about that. But the way that this course is calibrated is such that um, it's going to be a rare, a rare audience, and. Um, That's ultimately, in my opinion, to the good. So anyway, that's the, uh, the pitch. Check that out. A few notes on um, breath work here at the beginning. For newcomers, here for for James LaFond um, you're welcome to skip ahead but you're also welcome to go and explore the back catalog of the Warhorse which is the tagline is you know with you in deep waters and what does that mean well it's itself kind of a bold claim It means essentially that there's hope beyond the black pill. And um, I don't know, right? You may 
it may be the nature of this life that you have to uh, suffer for these things and that any attempt to pass tools, tips, tricks, wisdoms, techniques on other than at that last desperate moment when the darkness is closing in and the individual has no, no other choice but to embrace humility. Um, I, you know, I tend to think that's, that's actually not the structure of the world. Um, I tend to think that's more a feature of this ongoing ongoing uncertaintism slog through many decades long. But um, go into the catalog, check it out. There's a great deal of work on uh, related to the theory that PTSD is not in any way, shape, or form isolated to individuals coming back from the Middle East or who experienced spousal abuse or something like that. It's, um, it's rather the case that that decade, decades-long uh, multi-generational, multi-dimensional uh, total war that you and everybody you know has been subjected to um requires a certain reframing even to approach it and um, then the use of specific tools. And one of these tools is breath work. And so for hardcore listeners who are who are ready for more, I'm going to switch over so I can attempt maybe to get some specificity on the the anatomy here, but um, wrong tab. Working with right from so from the yoga frame, um, it can be a little confusing at first because is it just about the breath you will hear this you know you're doing all these poses you're sweating people are bending in, in awkward ways and then someone will say some instructor will say well really yoga is just all about the breath in the end and the poses are ancillary and um, that's true I think we may have mentioned this before um, and keep in mind, uh, this was brought up recently by a, uh, a friend of the show. Um, the most clarity that I have on the original poses, seven, nine, whatever there were, these were less about the movement and more, in fact, about accessing different states of consciousness. It's long been known that you can get into revelatory stuff, 
hallucinatory stuff, all types of different manipulation. Go up, go low. There's even a school of thought that, um, what do they call it? The, the, something like the rainbow monk who, whose body can sort of go into a type of uh, coma-like stasis. And I believe, I guess it's sort of the soul of the individual is outside of time. So the body is remaining for, you know, 100 years, whatever it takes, and actually alive, technically, in some sense. But the soul is being refined and eventually emerges into this rainbow condition. I have no experience with that as of yet. Um, interesting connotations there. In any event, um, those original poses were quickly co-opted by a set of inter, uh, interdisciplinary and intercontinental scam artists. I believe the Beatles played a part. A lot of this went down in London. A lot of it went down on the west coast of America. A bunch of these gurus were brought over and a bunch of just patent horseshit was pervade far and wide. Perhaps it was the, you know, the American spirit that um, plowed through all that to distill from it, you know, whatever accessible value was there. Not to say that these altered states don't have value. Um, in my opinion, likely without some serious spiritual context, basic understanding of portals, right? Um, it's going to take you into some shit that you probably don't want. Injury being one of those. You hear this from many like opposing schools, whether it's Olympic lifters or functional patterns, who I do like, um, or or runners or what have you. You know, they'll tell you that doing yoga will loosen things up in such a way that you you will then get injured, which is true. Um, but there again, we're just stuck in this entirely material biological framework chasing our fucking tail year after year but that aside in the course of this these realizations that in my opinion eventuated into something pretty valuable that being the power flow sort of style where you you are almost constantly moving and position positions are presented in a in a with the caveat being with the good instructor the you know they're presented in a sequence that is not just logical but um affects access to places 
of tension. And we've talked about this before, you know, whether it's an energetic bind or, or otherwise, um, it's kind of irrelevant because through that system, you will find your way out. Your way out of the total allostatic load? I don't think so. I think there's definitely a limit. So I, while I've spent enormous amounts of time, I, it's my opinion that yoga is not to be dismissed, nor is it to be, um, it doesn't require your total absolute devotion maybe for a time until you really figure out how it affects you and you find your baselines for it, which does take time. So something to consider there. So speaking of these sequences and movement and breath work, so when you do sort of grasp the quote flow, um, and you have enough cardiovascular, you know, or gas tank to start to actually observe what's happening through one sequence or another. You'll notice that the, the diligent, talented, like real instructor will be cueing the inhale and the exhale in a specific way things get fucked up, flows get fucked up, you kind of have to jump back, we're all human, what have you. In general terms, when you are, when your head, or let's say, you know, your body is headed down towards the floor, you are descending, you are exhaling. And the reverse is true. When you're rising, you're inhaling. And that's all good and fine, and it is good, and it is fine. Um, you know, in the, the comfy, clean, patchouli-scented environs of the yoga studio, but transferring this into the real world, particularly if, you know, if your job is to send emails I'd imagine you could do yoga for your whole life and probably be fairly fairly fit and get someone else to carry your groceries, whatever. But if you if you are into the as our friend uh, Mr. Roosevelt said, the strenuous life. What what do you do? I think massive amounts of dudes get frustrated with this aspect of it. So the key here, hopefully speeding you through some of the suffering and injury, is revealed through like quick study of of the the anatomy. So musculoskeletal system. Image.
I mentioned functional patterns. It's this guy, I think his name's Nadia, Nadi, N-A-D-U-A-I or something like that, Aguilar. He's, he can be very off-putting, but that's understandable for a guy who's competing for market space. When you get, when you sort of understand what his approach is, it's not particularly, it, to his credit, like it's not a revolutionary. Yoga is kind of way weirder, actually. Um, his, his thing is simply that, and we've spoken of this before, you have a set of slings in your shoulders, your hips, whatever, and all of these connective coordinating m- muscles. Wrong picture, that's not very helpful. I'm looking for a picture of essentially the back and the lats. Yeah, it's always just latissimus dorsi. So I like to imagine an animal of some sort. And, you know, if you study a little bit horses and dogs, two of our greatest companions, you find that they each have a very distinct and um, way of breathing that's, that's very different from our own. Um, dogs obviously pant, and they seem to really breathe through their mouths a great deal other than for the sniffing. Horses cannot, in fact, take in great amounts of air like required to exert themselves um, unless they're in motion. The movement of their bodies literally works the bellows of their musculature to drive out the rib cage in time with their particular, and there are a couple of different gates, and that is refined down even through um, a couple of different types of horses, as, as I understand it. While I am uh, a bit of a ranch hand, I am, I am not a major horse guy, but I I picked up this much. So the human appears to be, once again, you know, pretty special. And if we go back to a couple episodes ago where we began wrestling with this incredibly complex fact, which kind of dovetails with this mention earlier of that moment where you widen out your perspective and yet everything stays in focus or can even be refined into a, some greater total. Um, this is how, you know, reality appears to be how God has structured it. Um, when you breathe, let's say properly, and we'll get into that a little bit more in a moment, but um, utilizing the diaphragm is the only way that you breathe. You, as we mentioned this many times, your lungs have no muscle. When the organs are in the right place, when you're 
posture is in the right place and when there are you know this none of this demonic sort of um uh the mold these attachments when this stuff is worked out to some so it's just more of a uh, a liquid you know constantly moving antagonist as opposed to the creature which is now latched on and is, and is doing its damage the the spinal fluid that moves right you're aware that you have this fluid somehow magically encased in this little sheath inside of your vertebra which is exchanged this is cerebral spinal fluid so in the way that the horse can only like when it's picking up to top speed when it's fucking galloping that's when it's this makes sense, right? But you don't really think about it because well, you might imagine, well, can't the horse just stand there and fucking breathe? You know, <laughs> no, it cannot physically fucking do that. It's a system like, a, I mean, beyond any sort of mechanical system that we can imagine. All of these things appear to be based rather on observations of nature. Um, so no, the horse cannot do that. The human to some degree can't. And um, so quick back to, you know, proper diaphragmatic breathing. This, this shit is a lot more fucking complicated than you'd think. And this, in my opinion, tends to play into this idea, you know, the more senescence, the stupider we get, the less happy we get, the less capable we get. The more closely we get to giving away all freedom, all autonomy, all dreams, and really all goodness and just becoming slaves to the symbol that we have worshipped, you know, that, that will be our downfall. This being the ching I'm going to try and do this and, and talk my way through it. The simple version is that when you breathe properly, it it provides the pressure on through not but not a static pressure, right? This is a complicated, very complicated, not just system, but fucking set of systems that's pumping fluid up to your brain that's presumably allowing you know, this, this whole thing to function. I'm not going to say for you to think. Um, that's a, a false step, in my opinion. In my opinion, it's something on the order of, um, again, some type of ectoplasmic um, receptive fluid working with frequencies and voltages that are Maybe Tesla understood them. I don't really know, but um, isn't this an amazing fact? Like, well, yeah, when you stop breathing, you die. No shit, fucking. Yeah, no fucking shit. And this isn't too. I appreciate because I get to just pull all the stuff from the human performance guys, the Huberman Labs, the the Brian McKenzies, though too 
the latter's credit, I think he's veering into um, more esoteric, more interesting and powerful territory. Um, so let's take walking. This is more or less what you're built to do. Let's take functional patterns, this set of slings that you have, two shoulders, two hips. Um, and think of a series of pumps, right? You have a lymph pump. You have this, what some people have called um, an atomic implosion device, your, being your heart, uh, more than just some simple mechanical uh, electro-muscular pump that just is built of a different material and just fucking goes no matter what, okay? And can reach these red line states and can be taken down to way other states through conscious manipulation, but it just goes. When walking, the lats extending at this diagonal, say from your left hip, you know, over to your right shoulder. Um, that's not where the musculature actually builds, but that's where the coordination is between that right shoulder sling and the left hip sling. We will be here literally all day if we walk through, you know, every piece of this. So what I want to point out, though, is one we did, you know, the value of this insight into like breathing in motion. Now, expand this rather than refine it into perfect. Well, what's perfect? You know, this implies some, this more granular, refined, focused, tense. I think it's rather this expansion. And um, through this constant, uh, you know, constantly worsening senescence and um, immobility, what have you, there are many bright lights. Um, I've highlighted, I've highlighted those, you know, that I've, that I've taken from, again, here, functional patterns is another one. I would, I would investigate, you know, this guy. I can't vouch for all of it. I've not taken the course. I, I'm not probably going to. And, uh, but I have, I have worked with a fair bit of it over the years. And, one of his, I think, insights here is that is this sling concept. So I'll run through that and then get to like the refinement piece that's kind of odd. An unusual sort of fact. Thankfully, the, the perfect, right? Not the perfect focused tensed, but the perfect flowing, everything's good version of human motion can be accessed, you know, 
you're not just going to sit down day one when you've been you've spent 10 or 20 years letting the chair and the mold and the fucking everything work on you but the working through it to uh, I think for a lot of people I mean I tend to have this fucked up view where you know of refinement like how good can you get and then compare that like maybe we all do this but for many individuals I think this is very accessible for others it's going to be harder there's something happening here between the left hip the right and you can reverse this you know whether it's uh, the left shoulder and the right hip but let's focus on the right PRI postural restoration institute their in their insight here into this overuse of the right side <clears throat> and the loss of these kind of zones, right? Well, one of those main zones is what they call the ZOA over your left hip. And check out their videos, go through some of the past War Horse podcasts, and there's, we're not gonna cover this fucking ground again. This left ZOA, which is just a, some, I don't know why they need to use these acronym designations but this is the area of musculature you know um, right above the hip and the lumbar region extending up we have the latissimus is like this massive sheet actually even though if it's not very developed you may not even see it this extends down in as well so This is all to say that you can have an issue with this COA, right? This area of musculature above your left hip. This can go down your left leg and cause essentially improper stacking as well as knotted musculature, as well as, you know, the mold. Um, energetic in you know in the in the super woo-woo places the micro covens this is like negative energy I mean I, did, I, I think we could do a little better than that but and and you know in uh, Vanderkolk's terms this is it's not as if it's like distilled the essence the essential trauma the the black oil or the the garmambosia but it might as fucking well be um, because this seems to be how it presents. So to continue this thought, you can have this misaligned stack on the left. It can go all the way down to your foot. So now your gait is, you, you just imagine you have some issue with your instep on the left foot. This can actually be related to or ultimately sort of originating out of an issue with your right shoulder in the way that that sling bilateral mechanism works now you add in the senescence the sitting the uh, sleeping patterns um, dehydration etc and you've you've got essentially uh, the pieces in place for for what we call illness 
On this podcast, we take that whole piece and we raise it up one more level into some sort of system. You know, uh, if you don't want to live a long time, if you don't want to see how what happens in this world, if you don't uh, want to be there for your children when, I mean, fuck, when I'm 80, you know, when I'm 85, you know, they'll roughly be their 40s. I'm 46 now. My parents are going to presumably be around a while and we'll see. I want I want to see that more than pretty much anything else in life. I want that. If only to be in service could to continue that sacrifice for them. So if this shit just sounds like foofy fucking whatever, frankly go fuck yourself cuz you don't know shit about shit. Hopefully that's not the case. And you can take this next piece, you can take what we just laid down and slot it up a notch into a higher piece. And if you want to do that, we're not going to do it today. I don't know what I'm at. Well, almost an hour. So go back, subscribe, hit episodes 8, 9, 10, hit the pilot episodes and all that preceding theoretical and practical work is already done. And... um it's there. So in terms of this, in terms of one segueing ourselves over into a ridiculously interesting interview with Mr. James Lafon and also fighting, uh, which is what he's mainly known for as well as writing a massive amount and a bunch of very unique much maligned, even banned uh, theses on human history and the like. In order to segue over there from this land of the warhorse and seamlessly weave these many worlds for you, a couple times in this introductory hour, we've spoken of this, this widening effect versus this cramping, this precision, focusing, clenching, it's been called. Um, there's a balance to be had, right, in fighting arts as well as many things between you know, force and precision. And um, it, it's, it's such a fascinating thing to watch somebody capable of enormous force that is a large person who is also agile somewhat you know i mean we're not talking about fucking michael jordan but just a big guy who can move somewhat and then you add a little bit of of thought you know of skill and awareness to this and all of a sudden you've got you know you've traveled through a portal yet again into a world and um mr lafon has done a lot of a lot to expand you know the thinking on this there there are many other of course writers and thinkers who have contributed and i'm not you know trying to segue into into something like um an offering so you know of, of any uniqueness i'm rather sharing an observation that this amazing thing happens when 
you know, you begin to actually fight as opposed to merely um, hesitate to say spar because that has, you know, is on a spectrum of engagement as well. Um, but when you see some of the ferocity, right, enough so that in our case over this weekend, nobody got hurt, but some serious shots were landed. Um, and that allows both parties to open up, if you will. And um, is an, in my opinion... Um, many of the voices who have bemoaned, you know, the lack of of a warrior culture of and and of course the the denigration of that, um, but also a lack of uh, brotherly camaraderie, men being men. This is all of a piece. We're not, you know, arguably going to get some of that without all of that. And uh, this was just simply one, you know, observation that was afforded to me um, in attending this affair of honor, which I was very grateful um, to receive this invitation. And uh, I benefited greatly from the, from the people that I met from the instruction I received, from the opportunity to be hit in the head and the face and other places on my body and to hit other people. But this, um, this sense of expansion, of opening up the valves, um, of hitting the gas, whatever you, whatever simile or analogy or metaphor may work for you it, it was it was definitely a gift that um, I would encourage anybody listening to this to maybe play with that particular distinction and and see what you find because there are always counter arguments for why you shouldn't go and do this. Why, yeah, you know, I might get into this or that, or I might get hurt or, or whatever. There's always some fucking counter argument. And um, to work through, again, for newcomers, what we call the mold, this not necessarily immaterial, but at least part immaterial and apparently part material. thing, you know, structure that is overlaid upon the human being in uh, what appears to, to me personally to be uh, a long-standing demonic dark regime that has taken many forms over uh, a great deal of time. So I'll leave it there and uh, non-subscribers, you will get a piece of this. Subscribers, of course, you get it all. I will break this up into two episodes. I've got a couple of other interview episodes that are, God willing, um, going to be coming through, and I may, you know, intersperse this. Not entirely certain yet, but 
Thank you for your attention. I hope that this, this introduction was of some value to you and that you will subscribe. This is one of the ways that I provide for those children that I mentioned earlier. And, um, you know, in a more open sense, I, I challenge you to provide me with a link of um, a catalog um, that's doing the same thing that we're doing here because I don't think there is one. Just like I say that King of Dogs is the best book. Sorry, Mr. LaFond, I know you put out a lot of books and this has nothing to do particular, but I apologize to Mr. Cormac McCarthy as well, um, as, as well as everyone else. Um, but that's, you know, the framework that I'm coming from. And so I greatly appreciate the support. And if you would like to subscribe, once again, there should be links wherever you found this episode. If not, go to the Instagram, follow the link tree, fucking DM me, go to the website, you can email me, whatever, there's no excuses. Um, we really value the feedback. A lot of the content is sparked through questions, suggestions, and um, if, you, if you are a newcomer, you've caught us in the, uh, the Diogelos phase. And um, go back to the beginning and you will find uh, all that, you know, set up available. So with no further ado, I'll cue some music and we'll go over to the interview with James LaFont, fighter, writer, uh, and traveler extraordinaire. Thanks. thing I had in my notes was <clears throat> the Eastern tribes. You mentioned them even today. Um, and I know they come up in, in some of your historical work. Yes. You mentioned the Delaware. Somebody hadn't, I was talking to somebody just I think last week and they wanted to know what your thoughts would be on training for terror the experience of terror and they wondered if you had any idea if some of these eastern tribes were uh, you know doing rites of passage or building into their their creation of warriors this this you know some um, acquaintance with terror and okay uh, it was First of all, you're talking about hybrid cultures. Uh, the Iroquois tribes have over 1,700 Norseland words. The Algonquin tribes, their traditional enemies, uh, have over 500 Irish loan words. And uh, just accidentally, people getting shipwrecked across the Atlantic. And the way the North Atlantic acts as a pump 
suckering people to Sedowin, Icewind, and Greenwind, then cutting them off from Norway, and the weather driving them towards Canada. And then they find better timber than they have in Norway, and they don't have to fight the sea ice. So there's this natural thing that seems like it happened for about 8,000 years, going all the way back to the swordfish hunters. Um, there's a book by that title, and the guy politely uh, skews any idea, that, uh, steers away from any idea that there was a circumpolar culture that was mixed race, that had shared technologies and intermarried. Um, but the, uh, the intermittent contact, you would have hundreds of years of contact during a warm period and then during a cold period, contact would be broken off between uh, Europe and the eastern woodlands. And uh, there, uh, there were Native American folk legends uh, about stonish giants, uh, wendigos, uh, and these people, uh, these seem to have been shadow memories of invaders. Uh, the Iroquois claim that their ancestors came from the northeast down the St. Lawrence River. They lived in longhouses. No other group of Native Americans lived in longhouses. And more importantly, they lived in the type of Nordic longhouse that was not in use after 1200 um, in, in northern Europe. Uh, so there's, uh, I, I think that uh, we can get into later different aspects of this contact but I think with uh, uh, the different legends of the cannibalistic pale hairy man out in the woods uh, the importance of the lone vision quest of the uh, the warrior that's becoming a man uh, all across North America and the way that tribes would interact in later times with certain frontiers people and build a mythology around them. I think it points to the fact that, uh, and we could get into the Spanish thing also because that was also in Eastern Woodlands. Uh, it points to the fact that at certain periods, I think that these Stone Age tribes were terrorized by Iron Age tribes from Europe. Hmm. Or, and, and to yeah. include later expeditions that were more organized. Yeah. And do you think that, uh, have, you, have you studied their, I mean, I guess you can take a lot of the Norse stuff um, to kind of extrapolate on what their mindset was. Um, I always, the Delawares are the, are the main ones that, you know, they come up in Blood Meridian um, and they're, they're made out to be extremely fierce, very practical, skilled, they're just special, you know. They're 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 pitted against the Comanches at certain points, but they're allied with um, the white mercenaries. And um, do you do you have any insights, or do you ever do you speculate on? Because we're talking about a, a you know a culture of warriors. It's not yes. it's not like what we experience where. You know, we, we we gravitate to a thing. I mean, you know it as well as anyone can. You you gotta you we almost have to create it ourselves, and then 
we're we're shunned or or we you know go along with the well, we kill the jam singers or whatever even this thing we're doing this weekend we're kind of trying to recreate uh, yeah. uh, what these people lived uh, so the two primary tribes that allied with first the English and then Americans expanding westward that went coast to coast because at any given time if there was a uh, an Amerindian tribe that was fighting the U.S. government. There were more Amerindians on the side of the U.S. government in just about every conflict. There was a temporary period where that was not true with the Sioux. And for that reason, this is like the only period we're shown, as it, it probably most movies about Native Americans have to do with the Northern Plains Indians. So the Delaware in uh, the Shawnee, the, the Shawnee actually had dealings in Virginia with the planters in Virginia in the 1600s. Um, and like many tribes, they slowly migrated to the west. You would have Shawnee raiding parties would come all the way down into the Carolina, or it was just called Carolina. And it included Georgia and both Carolinas at the time. There's a race of people that anthropologists, during the birth of that uh, discipline in the 1800s, called the Sylvid race. They were regarded as ethnically distinct and the same people on both sides of the Atlantic. A Jesuit priest in 1638 or 34 named Lejeune in Jesuit, Jesuit Revelations, there's a database held in a Canadian university, uh, that has every letter that was ever sent home to the, head, the heads of the order. He described the Mohawks without their war paint on as looking just like French peasants. The same tent. And this was called the, the nose uh, and the, uh, the slight tent of the people on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, uh, it was scientifically uh, called Sylvan, but in a more colloquial terms, it was called Savage. Savage has the same root as Sylvan, the same root as the state of Pennsylvania. Okay, Sylvania, the woods. So a savage hmm. in Europe was a person that lived in the woods around, and it had the same meaning as the word heathen had in the British Isles where they were per the people that lived up on the heath and in the heather. So uh, pagan meant the person of the village. So pagan is this older uh, term that Christians use to describe the villagers that have not yet converted uh, to Christianity because it was a top-down conversion. The heathen is the person that they're converting uh, from across the battle lines uh, the, the, because they live up in the heather. So they were both terms for pre-Christian people and heathen and savage were applied more often than Indian or India by uh, the French, the Dutch, and the English uh, in North America than the term Indian was in the, the first 200 years. And, if you read uh, Increase Mather's 
the war against uh, the Indians. Uh, uh, this document uses the term heathen, I think, twice as often as it uses Indian. It uses them interchangeably. But this was the person that lived around. And when these people were trafficked as forced labor to the plantations, uh, a plantation meant a place where you planted people to form a tax base. If they escaped, some of them would naturally gravitate. Some of them tried to become pirates. Some of them would naturally gravitate to people like them that were living similarly out in the woods. And the Delaware particularly, if you read treaties from the 1700s, uh, their names of their chiefs run from one-third to two-thirds Irish. Now, the names of their enemies, the, the Iroquois, uh, who were also allies of the English and Americans at, at, different, at different points, uh, they, would, uh, they were predominantly indigenous and in some cases English, but not Irish. You know, like there was uh, uh, Brandt. Was 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 one uh, was one chief, so the uh, just reading the the different treaties and there's uh, there were there were other borrowings that we can look into, but the Shawnee and the Delaware were both working as scouts all the way into Mexico. There was during the period that Blood Meridian covers, which is an excellent novel, which I read on a train and I gave to another man on the train when I was done with it. Uh, the uh, there is uh, it's not covered in that novel, but during the same period, there was a troop of 60 Shawnee scalp hunters that were hunting uh, Indians and mestizos in Mexico and selling their scalps and they got scalped by Mexican scalp hunters. Okay, uh, now there was a document written in 1807. It was written in 1809 about a voyage in 1807. It's been largely republished in a book called Across the Great Divide where Astoria was founded uh, by ship. There were disasters attendant upon this and there is an episode when the men, the seven men who crossed the Great Divide eastward instead of westward, like Lewis and Clark did, mm -hmm. uh, they ran into a, uh, a Hudson Bay Company expedition that was coming down the Columbia River by canoe. There was one of the guides was a lesbian Indian woman who was, you know, she was playing at being a warrior uh, and she actually had like a wife. Now, this was an odd thing, but it was something, if you could pull it off, it could be accepted in a tribal society. Uh, tribal societies weren't hierarchical like our neo-tribalism tends to be hierarchical because we come from a management society. Uh, but, you know, most tribal societies will have set-aside positions for weirdos if they can be used as an asset. Well, the women in, a, in tribal America, they had more linguistic elasticity. So they made good uh, translators. So this woman was tolerated largely because she was, uh, she was the female husband of a translator. Now, the two people that were feared by all of the Pacific Northwest Indians who knew who they were 
were the two guides of the Hudson Bay Company, and they were Delaware. Now, we all know where Delaware is. <laughs> okay, these are guys from the Atlantic coast, from the Delaware River Valley. Yeah. And they are known and feared for who they are. In 1807, wow. at the mouth of the Columbia River. Wow. Okay, so it gives you an idea of what kind of trade networks that you had. These people knew about each other. Yeah. Wow. And there's a there's a marked difference. I'm not, you know, schooled in all this, but just my understanding having grown up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, where you've spent a bunch of time now. Um, there was something we would go as kids to like the museums you know and see the, um, how, how accurate it was we, you know who knows but there was always a sense that um, whatever that culture was for those Pacific Northwest Indians was was not like the legends we would hear about the Southwest Indians the Comanche Kiowa etc and it's also not like I mean the all you know uh, the Indian Wars and I mean all of the fighting that went out went on over here and um, I I'm not sure how we wound up there but have you do you have any thoughts on on why that might be um, sure uh, I actually drink with some Indians Haida Indians Eskimos uh, and even an insane Blackfoot woman who threatened to cut my throat. Out in, out in Portland, and there's this alliance of rednecks and Native Americans. Uh, Native Americans in that area tend to look to men of our racial group for protection against people that come in and commit crimes against them because they look so Asiatic, they're often mistaken guys come up from San Francisco and Los Angeles looking to mug people they're not going uh, and, and, they, and their preferred prey are Asian Americans they often cannot tell the difference between them and an Eskimo and, and a Haida Indian for instance so if you think about the racial similarity between Siberian tribes people Alaskan tribes people and the Pacific Northwest and the fact that they had uh, cultural means they had a the ability to stay in settled communities and use nautical flexibility to fish to well they're very much like the swordfish hunters that had a shared uh, you know Native American Norwegian type of hunting culture uh, between eight and four thousand years ago and uh, these trade routes would open back up again and open these connections up. So you'll see a definite racial drift in the way Native Americans are depicted in art. In the 1600s, they look like Europeans, but they're bigger and more muscular. In the 1700s, they looked like they look like Europeans mixed with Plains Indians. Uh, in the 1800s, they start to look more like Plains Indians, and now all the Indians either look like Plains Indians or Pacific Northwest Indians, and they look more Asiatic. So there's been an updating of the artistic depiction of people away from their actual race towards the last race that you had reservation contact with and you came to a treaty agreement with. 
Now the they were there was intermarriage between sailors in the Pacific Northwest too. There were mutinies, men that ran away. Oftentimes they would be enslaved in the Pacific Northwest, where they would be more likely to be adopted in the eastern woodlands. And uh, I think that's probably because of more of a racial similarity because of long periods of intermittent uh, contact. The, uh, uh, the thing that the Indians of the Southwest would have in common with the Indians of the Pacific Northwest is uh, they uh, tended to have more settled communities, uh, but due to intermittent droughts, you would have periods where you would have you would have uh, adobo town collapses, and you would have pueblo collapses because of uh, because of droughts and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, so, the type of nomadic southwestern culture that uh, the uh, that the Mexicans uh, and later the Americans run into wasn't the same thing that the first Spanish ran into, which was much less nomadic. And, and more subtle because of the climactic changes. Hmm. More, more. Um, and I feel like I missed your question, so don't, uh, don't feel free to repeat it. <laughs> that's, that's a good way to do it. We can just okay. keep coming back okay. to it and riffing on it. It's fine. Uh, well, what do we, what else do we know? I mean, just listening to you here, I guess we can presume that some of the select European war culture or prowess maybe even was imparted in the eastern woodlands in some sense there was a guy named Carl Finsky who was a Nordic mariner from Iceland who brought back two uh, Inuit people and he was gathering information on where they could settle there was a 50-mile exclusionary zone that the Inuit and the other Amerindians kept between themselves because they were in a constant state of war. And accidentally, Europeans would end up settling in the zone and then come into conflict because they would show nobody lived there. But it was a war zone. It would be like Kentucky in the 1700s where there weren't settled villages there. It was the dark and bloody ground. It was a hunting zone. Carl Fenske called uh, Canada white man's land. And it wasn't his land. And it was what uh, the Inuit people were describing it as the white man's land. And it was uh, apparently people that had white banners and white clothing. Because white until the 1600s, white is not a racial noun anywhere in the world okay this comes in with mercantilism so uh, this was describing the banners and the vestments of uh, most probably Irish priests Gaelic priests Mm. so you have these different periods where Nordic people and Gaelic people who are constantly at war with each other are settling with different groups of Native Americans and it seems like adopting their feuds. For instance, the, uh, when the French took the side of the Algonquins against the Iroquois, the Algonquins have, the French are Catholics, the Algonquins have 
Gaelic loanwords. The Iroquois have Nordic loanwords. Now, they got these Nordic loanwords from Thor cultists who were refugees from the king of Norway who went from Odinism to Christianity and declared a death penalty upon the Thor cultist that was holding out. Odinism flows into Christianity fairly seamlessly. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to be a genius translator to pull this off. Uh, so the, uh, before they could even speak each other's language, the, and by the way, the, the first Mi'kmaq Indian chief that's depicted on a commemorative Canadian stamp for 1714, this is uh, this has got uh, a stamp on it uh, depicting a person called uh, Chief Henry, who looks like Macbeth. He's got a beard and everything, and he's the first chief, Micmac chief, that uh, the English made contact with. Well, the uh, the Iroquois had this deep hatred for Christians, particularly Catholic Christians. They end up allying with Protestants against the French Catholics. And they were even doing mock crucifixions and baptisms with boiling water upon the Jesuits. Wow. Very early on. Uh, so it, uh, it seems like elements of Gaelic war culture survived uh, when people intermarried uh, on this side of the Atlantic. And it seems like, uh, with the Algonquins, and it seems like that Nordic war culture certainly survived uh, amongst the Iroquois. For instance, when the Iroquois first fought the French and the Algonquins together, they suffered a great defeat because they were fighting in a shield wall with stone axes and wooden shields and wooden breastplates. And they were fighting against men that were armed with muskets. And it was a disaster. So then they adopted the musket and they became staunch allies with the English against the French. So uh, I think, and, and there's a, a later transported uh, European element uh, running the gauntlet. This was an Eastern Woodlands Indians tradition where uh, Daniel Boone, Simon Kenton, they went through it. You have to run through the gauntlet if your uh, captives had to do this to get adopted into the tribe. If you're a boy, you run between rows of boys who beat you with sticks. If you're a woman, you run between the women, they beat you with sticks. If you're a man, you run between the children, then between the women, and then between the men, and they beat you with sticks. And if you survive it, they will adopt you. If not, they'll torture you and kill you, or they'll sell you. Well, this, the gauntlet, comes from the Swedish term gantelope, which was current in the 1640s in Sweden. It was a Swedish military tradition. You had Swedish colonies in what is now uh, New Jersey and Delaware and extreme eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, and we don't know exactly where this tradition came from, but this was a tradition that did not exist amongst the Native Americans until the Swedes came here. And it was a known tradition amongst the Swedes, which was also barred by the English and other European martial people. And uh, may have gotten into uh, the Native American culture through the English and not through the Swedish. We don't know. But uh, the, whether or not the Native Americans borrowed it from the Swedes and the English, or just from the Swedes, or just from the English. Don't know. 
but the English got it from the Swedes. Gauntlet is the English corruption of gantelope. And they even did this with children, children for punishment, for playing at being witches or something. In Sweden, it might have to be to run a gauntlet, run a gantelope between people of their own age group that are going to beat them with sticks. Hmm. Yeah, so th th those are just uh, some examples. Yeah. That, uh, this is not the best segue ever, but I did want to ask you your thoughts. You know, we mentioned Blood Meridian earlier, and there's this, maybe you recall that moment. I'm not going to be able to remember word for word, but it's, um, the gang is asking Judge Holden, or somehow it comes up that, you know, what's the proper way to raise children, and you know, the evil Judge Holden gives some some um, answer like um, you should put the child in front of uh, three doors and have him choose. And, and I think two of the doors have, you know, like a, a lion or a wolf or something that's going to eat him and have the child discern, you know, which. And, uh, you know, I just had my second son. And so a lot of these thoughts are, and, and I'm, you know, many of us are in the situation now where uh, looking at anarcho-tyranny uh, among any other number of problems. I know you I know you must have probably several books of thoughts on how to inculcate our children uh, with something like warrior spirit. Or is that even how you're thinking about it now? Oh, well, congratulations on your son. Thank you. Uh, uh, very glad for you. Me too. Uh, I have people contact me all the time with this question. Uh, there's a fellow who I haven't met yet who's sent me a dozen texts from Baltimore. We both grew up in the same town and never met each other. He's an upscale guy. And he's got a young son and he can't stand the idea of him growing up to be like his peers uh, yeah. an emasculated cipher. That's uh, part of the body economic. So uh, the, uh, uh, the the Seminoles, which was actually the Seminoles, was a, it, it was it was an amalgamated tribe that didn't exist before the Europeans. It's uh, Seminoles, a corruption, uh, a creek and English corruption of this Spanish term Cimarron, which means runaway. Okay. The first illustration I saw of a Seminole chief was from about 1700. He looks like William Neeson in Rob Roy. <laughs> okay. Now, the last picture of a Seminole chief, Billy Bowlegs, is a very dark-skinned African man. Um, and then there is a transition period where uh, most of these guys looked like half-breeds, but some of them just looked like pirates right out of black sails, okay? The, uh, and there's, there's illustrations that survive of these fellows. A uh, uh, man named Washington Irving, who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, yep. he, uh, his, his collected works runs to like a thousand words, and I had this book for a while before I had to get rid of my library, uh, he recounted the Seminole origins legend that was told to him around a, a town fire around 1800. 
The Seminoles did not need translators to deal with the American authorities. <laughs> so, uh, they, uh, the, the Seminole origins legend was uh, uh, the Great Spirit created the black man first. He's the eldest brother of mankind. And the Great Spirit loved him, but he thought he could do better. So then he created the red man. And he loved him, but he thought he could do better. So then he created the white man. And there was a time when all of these brothers came to live together, and the Great Spirit had a gift for all of them. And the rule was that the youngest brother gets his gift first. So he opened, the Great Spirit opens up a box, and the... Uh, the youngest brother, the white man, gets to look in the box first, and he looks within there, and he sees a paper and an inkwell, and he pulls it out, and he becomes the brain trust of humanity, and he invents all these great things like books and whiskey and the Bible. And then the, the middle brother, the red man, he looks into the chest, and he sees a tomahawk, and he immediately picks that up, and he's going to be the warrior. And then the black brother goes to the chest and he walks in and there's a shovel. And this is what's left to him. Uh, and this was obviously a probably recently cobbled together folk tradition that was explaining the current order of things because at that time the Seminoles had, they had literate uh, men of European descent as leaders. They had mixed race warriors and then they had a laboring class that were descended from runaway or stolen or purchased, uh, you know, African-American shadows. So yeah. uh, that, but they were coming of age in a time of peril. They, uh, and they most valued uh, the warrior tradition, among other things, which was in a way their doom because they fell victim to the managerial class. Uh, but they did not get exterminated. They had, uh, Billy Bullegs was given 50 slaves to move to Oklahoma. Uh, they, they ended up with treaties. And some of, the, some of them were never conquered. They, they stayed out in the Everglades. Uh, uh, the one guy's name was Sam, in fact. I forget what his last name was. It was a very European last name also. But, but I think that uh, the best thing you can do is just any any way that you could inculcate a warrior ethos in them with the understanding that that's going to make you the, the object of jealousy and manipulation and envy on the part of the people who hold power. Yeah. You'll be useful to those people. Yeah. I had a recent example. I'll tell you later, but it's uh, a recent situation in a strip club with a bunch of criminals. Uh, they fell into that. So it's a way where if you're just the economic man, if you're just a man that just has the tool, uh, then you're going to be subject to both classes of people. Uh, if you're the, uh, the warrior type, you're going to be subject to, uh, you're going to have to deal with your own class of people and you're going to have to deal with the manipulative ruling class. Uh, but if, you're, if you decide to just go the managerial route, uh, the more nefarious versions of your own economic self 
could just get control. This is what's recently happened to traditionalist political people. They've seen control of police and military go to people of their same class, their ideological arrayed against them, and now the guns are pointing at them. So I actually think it's preferable to be part of the warrior class and something that's disintegrating because if you're just part of the managerial class, if you uh, if you lose this battle of skullduggery and, and wits and ill intentions, then the warrior class is, is who's, they're going to come and round you up. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. And then you will, of course, you'll also be ostracized by the uh, by the managerial class. But if you're a member of the warrior class, you're at least of value to the managerial class. Yeah. As an asset. Yeah. So we kind of have to kind of got to be on our toes here uh, for those of us who are parents now to try and inculcate some of this and be prepared to to put on the mask if need be and because we might not necessarily want our children to you know be going overseas and I mean maybe we do I don't know we'll have to see but uh, you know fighting the essentially somebody else's yes. wars um, well the idea of the soldier is actually an antidote to the idea of the warrior. I mean, the way that uh, the, the way that a uh, a civilization and, and it takes civilizations a very long period of time to destroy tribal societies. Uh, they do it in alliance with other tribal societies, and they do it by utilizing soldiers, who will often be trained by warrior class people. Um, you know, your first late. British light infantry was trained by Native American warriors. Uh, the tactics that uh, uh, that Wesley, uh, Duke of Wellington, used against Messina in the Peninsula War in 1809 to 1812 in uh, uh, in Spain. Uh, these rifle tactics, squad tactics uh, against the French column. These are actually developed uh, in concert with Native American uh, military advisors. They develop better methods of using the firearm for warfare than the people who invented the firearm for warfare. But the, um, uh, well, one option is to uh, uh, just cancel your son who might want to go. I, I coach a guy, actually, he can't make it this weekend uh, because he's, he's in the military and he got called away on, on duty this weekend. But uh, if he uh, if he makes his living in his life uh, fighting other people's wars, uh, uh, you know, and that's what he wants to do, that's fine. But uh, I also let him know that it's an option uh, to just learn a skill set and then bring that home and do what you want with it at home, uh, even if it's being uh, a private security contractor. You know, the way that the managerial class is intentionally destroying American society, they're actually making a lot of openings. All I saw was, uh, two nights, it's not all I saw, but uh, one news in Portland when I'd be at the bar, two news articles a night would be on Back the Blue 
and why we now have private security companies. I saw some of those. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and it was uh, so automatically you, know, you have uh, uh, th this need arises at an end of empire stage. Uh, you uh, you had uh, part of the genesis of the feudal Europe was um, uh, was people who would essentially be like senators or just very wealthy. And essentially, towards the end of the Roman Empire, the senators were just the wealthiest guys. Um, and they didn't really have political power. They had economic power. These people would end up having gangs of gladiators that were their thugs, their bullies, or they would be uh, German mercenaries. And then this develops into the feudal uh, war band. Mm -hmm. It also developed from the tribal war band as well. But it was going both ways. It was going from your group of gladiators are, are working for you, and then it came from the other way, where you, you're using a Germanic uh, tribal warband structure uh, as well. So it leaves more openings for people of uh, the warrior class, and uh, I think that's a good thing, because you, there'll be a decent way of, uh, of making a living uh, protecting people, and some of the people you're protecting might not be that decent. I, was, I went with a wealthy man, too. He treated me. He took me to a strip club where these rich guys go. And the strippers, most of them don't speak much English, Latinas, and they outnumber the rich guys by like three to one, and they're climbing all over you. And he gives me $400, and he says, have a good time. And I was trying not to get drunk. And there's this Kshatriya, one of the warrior class from India, who's a criminal. And he's there. He runs these girls from coast to coast. Hmm. And he operates out of uh, San Francisco and Denver and a place in New Jersey. And I saw him looking at my friend because he knew my friend was a guy that knew people and had money and had connections. And uh, he saw me paying attention to him and the other criminals. And he was uncomfortable with me. We spent like 10 hours there. After about four hours, he could tell by the way I stepped around a bottle that I was losing the battle with trying not to be drunk. Mm -hmm. And he touches me on the shoulder. He says, you're, you're drunk. And I looked at him, and I nodded yes. He said, good then. I am drunk. Now we can be friends. <laughs> because he was worried about me being the only sober guy there. He was afraid I was going to do something to somebody. Uh, and then we ended up having a good time, and uh, uh, yeah, it was just a—it was a freak show. There was even a three-foot-tall African midget there uh, that was the janitor. And, you know, there's a guy that doesn't speak English handing you towels in the men's room and selling breath mints to the hookers and you know condoms to the to the customers and and everything. But it was uh, uh, there were two wealthy Americans there that were of the class and the man that brought me there that actually tried to, and I'm, I look older than I am, and I'm 59, okay, uh, the, the girls were all calling me Poppy, all these Colombian girls and Dominican girls, but I had men who had good jobs who were in their 30s who could afford to go to this place where you just hemorrhage money constantly, um, who were trying to be my buddy and then there was the very wealthy guys that are just spending, you know, thousands of dollars a night uh, on these 
pretty girls for their company uh, that were waving me over. They wanted me to abandon my friend and be their friend. Mm -hmm. Okay, and this is a, I'm a broken down piece of shit. I'm going to get my ass kicked tomorrow. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but I had, uh, you know, actually young criminals, a full generation younger than me. I was the guy they were worried about. Okay, uh, uh, just because I, they could tell I was looking at the world yeah. from a, a warrior perspective, that right. it was my job. I didn't have any money. It was my job to make sure that the guy that was footing my bill didn't get hurt. Yeah. I mean, I'd been in a place with him one time where he got roofied, and I got him out of there. Hmm. Okay, you know, uh, so because you, you, if you're a high roller, you're a target. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I drank just enough to be sociable. And then ended up making friends with the most vicious criminal there. Uh, even I made friends with a, a wigger from Columbia, an actual redneck from Columbia. Who was there with his <laughs> Colombian girlfriend who works there. And uh, he wanted me to move to his country. And he said he'd get a doctor to fix my eye. And he said, we have beautiful women in my country. You ought to come there. We have good German doctors. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, so this is the place where 90% of the customers are criminals. And they uh, have, uh, and the few people that aren't criminals are rich guys. Is Portland? No, this was right across the river from Manhattan. This oh. was in New Jersey. This was 10 days ago. No. Oh. Yes, and it was, uh, I actually had Dominican strippers uh, fighting over me. It was great. And a one, the one bitch broke her wine glass on the bar in front of me so that the other chick couldn't crawl up to me. She, this One chick's crawling to me while the other one is trying to get a date with me. And then she just takes her glass of wine that she's drinking that I bought for her, and she just shatters it on the bar like as a tank drop for this uh, this crawling seduction engine. And she says, back, away, my poppy, not your poppy, my poppy. <laughs> you know, so it was like one of these kinds of, of places, but you have, uh, uh, so it was, and the only quality of a warrior I had was just the fact that I was being vigilant, that's all. You know, I, yeah. Uh, uh, Fascinating. Yeah, so it, it's just valuable. Yeah. So the other question that, I, I mentioned um, that I really wanted to ask you, and I had mentioned this in one of the early episodes of this podcast. Um, well, there's two parts of it, I guess, and you can, you know, I'll throw them out and you take them wherever you want to take them. But there's the there's the matriarchy, um, like the fact of, you know, you've I think you've said I, I can't quote you, but. You're saying you've said something like we're in a matriarchy and we have been for some time, and um, and you've also you've also said here's where I'm conflating my my James Lafond a little bit. Um, you know that we're what we're looking at when we go out into public spaces like where maybe it's not populated with criminals and it's more like what people call the NPC. You know, you're kind of normie. Um, Again, I can't remember the quote, but you essentially said, you know, we're looking at a, a people um, who has re who has has the idea in the back of their minds that they're they're dying out and they're scared, um, and you know, I, like I said, 
take it wherever you want. But my my interest, I'm, it, I mean, there's many many angles to it. But what is the future, I suppose, for this matriarchy? Can can we speculate on it? Can we can we get an idea of of where it wants to go? Um, maybe by studying history. Or sure. I would call uh, uh, Nick Mason in an off-record off conversation called it the gynocracy. Um, and um, I would say it's a meta-matriarchy. Uh, there's one anecdote that happened it's Friday night. This happened on Saturday a week ago in New Jersey. Upscale New Jersey place. I'm staying with this wealthy fellow. Yeah. I... Uh, I walk to the train station to meet Banjo, who grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. He played banjo in a bluegrass band in Denver. He studied Kung Fu and Chinese medicine under different guys. Uh, and he ended up practicing some of this in New York. I've trained with him every year when I go to New Jersey. He takes the train from New York. He moved to New York for some reason I don't know why but he's there and he takes the train down there and we meet and we walk to a park and this is a town that used to be Italian and Portuguese American in New Jersey and now it is mostly Brahmin so there's the priestly class of Indians who actually function as merchants rather than priests which makes them the perfect American priests because all America worships is money and absolutely mercantile ethos yeah. so we found a spot between three elm trees next to a creek that flows into the Raritan River where people take their dogs to poo as far away from where the families are gonna be sitting at the tables as possible we put on our fencing masks and our lacrosse gloves and we start sparring and this is civilized we're not uh, you know, we got a couple of dings and bruises, but you could tell we're obviously practicing something and we're not trying to hurt each other. You don't even have to understand uh, anything about combat arts to realize this. So uh, a woman uh, who uh, seems to have been from the subcontinent brings her three-year-old grandson who has a tricycle with him to watch us. And they sit down in the grass and they watch us. And this boy is so excited. You've seen what looks, we're actually, it's on the sandy bank of what looks like a river to this kid. So it probably looks like two pirates dueling to him, okay? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, then other children show up. There's a very excited nine or ten year old fat boy who's never done anything in his life. You could tell he's got that Twinkie build. Uh, and other children pile up behind him. And in case they want access to the water, we move over behind this one tree. But no, they didn't want access to the water. They wanted to get as close to us as possible and watch what we were doing. And you could tell that this boy wanted to ask a question. Now, what's about to happen has happened to me about a dozen times. And it's happened to, uh, to Banjo a few times. Uh, because he just followed my lead and we both pretended not to see what was happening. Uh, what happened was a Brahmin an American businessman, the, what is probably the perfect postmodern American functionary in our purely economic uh, culture, 
uh, he comes up and he shoes away the children. Hmm. He even chases off the woman he apparently does not even know who's there with her three-year-old. Gets them to leave. So I know the cop cars are going to start coming. The cops have just been calling us. This has happened to me. I said, probably a dozen times. And sure enough, three cop cars over the course of a few minutes, they're not going to approach two men that have sticks, which is two cops. It's got to be at least three. Uh, I hear the man speaking to these police officers. They are over there. They are over there. I don't hear what the police officers say. I transition to unarmed drills where we take the masks off so that you can see that I'm a senior citizen. And this guy is essentially a middle-aged hippie. This is a guy, he looks like uh, looks like Sam Elliott back when he was doing movies with Tom Selleck and Patrick Swayze. Okay? The yeah. guy's a stud, but come on, he's got a silver mustache. You know, so now it looks like two old hippies doing Tai Chi in the park. So the township cops hand this off. Now an ambulance comes. And now three park ranger police come. These are armed police. They hand it off to the people whose jurisdiction is, because this is an, a very extensive park. This is a big park, an upscale area. And we knew just what to do. We never looked at the cops. We never let them know that they knew that we were there, because that could trigger a confrontation. Their need to confront us to save face in front of the public. So uh, we shook hands so it looked like we're we were done doing something that we had planned to do and then we packed our stuff and we started walking out and then two of the park rangers left and the other one followed us to the footbridge and what banjo said he said uh, well one we both run into it many times uh where the man is uh offended the merchant man is offended by men of a lower class uh, becoming the object of interest of his son. I've had many times a, a woman uh, has approached me with a son to train and the father has put the kibosh on it. Oh, uh, I, I practice 357 Magnum, you know, get out of here with your Hong Kong filly. And I'm not even a martial artist, okay? So, the, so that element goes into it. But the bigger element is, is that who is maintaining, uh, Banjo called it the great nest. He said, you cannot threaten the great matriarchal nest. But who was threatened? It wasn't the women. The women were glad to see their children interested in men doing like an ancient man thing. Yeah. It was the emasculated man with the money that saw the police as his servants, his gun toters. The men that are going to beat me and Banjo up or even shoot us if we resist. Because they wouldn't have been able to beat us up. They would have had to shoot us. Uh, they, I mean, they would have literally needed like a dozen cops based on the way they're trained to beat us up. So they would have had to shoot us. Uh, this guy brought those cops there to shoot us if necessary because we were showing uh, what he regards as an obsolete form of masculinity because now masculinity is buying people and manipulating people. 
his type of masculinity, this mercantile masculinity. So he is the matriarchal force. It's not that woman. Right. That that woman would have been thrilled if we would have went over and talked to that kid and like given him like an autograph stick or something like that. I think he thought Captain Hook was going at it with Peter Pan. You know, so it's not women that are the problem. Women beg me for this kind of stuff all the time. Could you train my son? My son's a troubled 40-year-old alcoholic. Could you train him? Uh, or could you train my grandson? Or my son, he's a little kid. We ha In Portland, I train with, uh, uh, with Portland Joe there. And the, the men that are with their sons that see us, they can't take their boy away from us fast enough. But the women, particularly the Asian women and the native women, will bring their sons over to us and let us watch and let them watch what we're doing. Interesting. Okay? And they're really interested in us being a good influence because they have instincts. You know, the managerial class man is a master of overcoming his own instincts and adopting a feminine uh, type of instinct. Mm -hmm. And, and using actual wiles. I mean, so that Brahmin guy, that's the real Delilah today, you know, and those, uh, uh, you know, he's got his above boards way of doing it. I felt much more comfortable five days earlier with the rich criminals mm -hmm. uh, that just wanted to buy me drinks and give me pretty girls to be their friend. I was much more honest than this. Yeah. And he's not doing those cops any favors. No. Okay, they got a crappy job to begin with. I personally do not like police officers even. I'm actually uh, going to have a fight with a police officer tomorrow. I'll probably lose, but I will hit him. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, so I, I don't think it's, uh, I, I think it's a colonization and it was a colonization of this you know, first masculinity gets uh, gets hijacked in a hierarchical method. Even neo masculine people, neo pagans, neo tribal people use all these hierarchical managerial models to reconstruct their fantasy tribe. When that's not how tribes were, and we can, you know, we that, that could be another discussion. But that that hierarchical model of tribalism and masculinity uh, that lends itself to colonization by the feminine. And the feminine in the medieval sense uh, was the priest who came in and converted your wife and then she got your son to convert to his religion and he was a celibate person. This happened to the Blackfeet tribe. This happened to the Hurons when they were converted by the Jesuits and they lost out to the Iroquois. Uh, the uh, and then you now have this, uh, uh, you ha your society is infiltrated uh, from the perspective of the people who control the education of the children, which is the women. You know, but the women have an instinct for educating their boys to be men, not all women, but particularly traditional women do. And uh, I, you can see even that in that, that illustration that just happened seven days ago. Yeah. Well, uh, for the for the um, 
avid warhorse absorber, which is what people have called uh, the, the serious listeners of this podcast, they might recall a big diatribe I did. I don't remember. I have no idea what episode, but on this uh, concept of, um, well, external validation, you know, like the person who's, who, you mean, you see these people all around where they, they just, they, they seem to have no inner core, um, whether, you know, a small tribe will validate them or just they validate them. They, they walk the earth with this kind of, um, insatiable need to 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 gain validation you know um and so and the hierarchy the resisting the hierarchy um avoiding it at least at least just having a chance you know against the the psyops and the pressures and the uh just the inertia of the thing Maybe as well, you know, that's a place where, where mother, mothers, uh, these kind of higher tier moms you're talking about who are trying to give their boys a chance. They have these instincts that they're following. Or I wonder if some of that for the male or, you know, the young, the young child um, wrestling with that, that need to be validated on a personal level is you know supported by by the mother and and if this is not not a key point i think it's an area where i've had very similar observations about um about what did you call him this 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 brahmin character who's actually the delilah that's what you call yes him. and yeah. we and we took him and he's he's making his way with money instead of with uh, feminine charms the uh, banjo ended up taking me to lunch at a Brahmin restaurant. And the men were scandalized and the women treated us great. <laughs> so the only people that would speak English to us were the women. The, um, wow. uh, if it gets to the point where women are calling for action and they're setting up a validation scheme, that's where tribal societies have tended to meet disaster. It happened to the Iroquois. It happened to the Mohawks. Uh, it was the fact that the women were allowed to vote on war that got them yeah. in their disastrous war against the United States. The, uh, it happened to the Sioux against the Crow. It was a Sioux woman started a war against the Crow. And uh, the Crow uh, had a great victory over the Sioux because of this woman shaming them. Uh, but this type of thing generally only happens after a tribal society is in crisis. Now, we don't have a tribal society, and when uh, it's it's a, we're in a society that's atomized and is constantly in crisis. And if you're if you're a boxing coach or if you're coaching any type of fighting, it's when I was a kid, it was my father that got me a boxing coach, and the guy that I sported with at the gym, Joey, it was his father that brought him to the boxing coach in my time since uh, the mid 90s coaching people is almost always the woman who is a single mother hmm. bringing uh, 
a, a boy to me, okay, uh -huh. because he doesn't have a father. You know, so, uh, and to the extent that they, so, again, that's that's in crisis. That's, uh, that's a disaster. But the way validation happened in a traditional tribal society, uh, it was multifaceted. It was all across it. You have, giving an example, Turtle uh, won the greatest victory against the United States military ever won by anybody. Uh, let alone a tribal society. He annihilated virtually the entire, uh, him and his men, uh, annihilated, annihilated virtually the entire American military establishment in an afternoon. Mm -hmm. And uh, it started when he was uh, a young man and a French adventurer uh, got some Americans to uh, raid the village when the men Without, when the leaders were away hunting and he was a younger man and he went to the elders and he was not technically qualified to lead a war party because he was only half Miami. He was half something else. Uh, but he, the elders, they approved his plan. He first had to put a plan together and say, this is what I want to do to deal with this. The elders approved it, but they did not have the authority to tell anybody to follow him. He then had to go to all the young men and say, the elders have approved my plan. Follow me and I'll give you victory. Uh, and this is what every one of these Native American uh, tribal leaders had to do. And uh, he would, uh, if, if he won, which he did, then he would get great status and then people would automatically follow him again and his following would swell. Uh, and he would validate the men under him and you could see this happening as he got older by giving gifts and this is uh, it, our, our hierarchical model has the general you know the captain makes more money than a lieutenant the colonel makes more money than the captain general makes more money than the colonel and so on and you have a higher monetary reward in a tribal society the person at the top of the, uh, what we would think is the top of the pyramid, but it's not a pyramid, it's actually like a campfire and he's the fire and the other people are around him, he gives everything away. His job is to redistribute, to give stuff away. Even uh, Alexander the Great, uh, they were tribal, he was a tribal person and so was Genghis Khan. These, and Attila the Hun, they gave all their stuff away. That's how they kept this ball rolling. That's how they maintained their status by validating other men by giving stuff away. And in your civilized model, you have a pyramid and it's about accumulation. And then you have to start playing your followers off against each other instead of rewarding them. You're playing them off against each other and it becomes corrosive and it, it doesn't last. Now, the tribal society will last indefinitely until it's annihilated by a stronger tribal society or until it's in long-term contact with civilization and it gets corrupted by the civilization. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to work out a way that you could have a tribal society within a civilization mm. uh, that, would, uh, that would be able to survive the corruption. So you can't do it hierarchical. Uh, any, uh, in fact, uh, that's what the RICO statutes are about. It's about preventing uh, a, a tribal gang 
uh, from uh, defying, you know, this the larger civilization. So uh, you, as a tribal society, when you go pyramid, when you go to the pyramid and you start mimicking the civilization, well, that's your last gasp. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're 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 pretty much done at that point. And yeah. To a certain extent, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin even alluded to the fact that uh, the Iroquois Confederacy was a partially a model for the Articles of Confederation. Uh, you know, so th- this is, uh, th- there's uh, there's aspects that tribalism are compatible with civilization, but uh, when you're trying to, you know, duck this, and uh, civilization is predominantly a uh, mechanism of invalidation. So if you can make your tribalism about validation, and just make it about that, then you're actually, you're actually uh, uh, operating within the void that's continually filled by what you're fighting against. So I would just use tribalism as a form of validation. I think that's the best way to use as an antidote, uh, you know, uh, you know, to the the civilizing process, which is one large way of negation. Fascinating. Well, in this session, you want you want to do one more, one more question? Oh, oh, oh sure, sure. I'm uh, uh, at, at your service Feel here. Feeling good? Yeah. I wanted to know your thoughts on, uh, as a man who spent his whole life um, cutting against the grain in many different ways, but particularly with the, the martial focus, you know the warrior versus your your janissaries, your cops, your soldiers types of that's that was not lost in me. Uh, it, it appears to me. And so as you've gone through these years, what has been the role of and I don't mean this in, you know, a trite way, but just your thoughts on how wonder and beauty have played yeah, how how have they played? I mean, I I want to put the words in your mouth to say they're they're you know countervailing force or they're uh, fuel or but I want to know you know if you if you care to share what what thoughts come to mind. Apologies for the interruption. This seemed like as good a place as any to draw the line between subscribers and non-subscribers. If you wish to partake of the rest of this conversation and the totality of the ongoing conversation, as well as dip into the entire catalog of the Warhorse. Make your way over to Patreon. Golden Goat Guild is what you're looking for. GoldenGoatGuild.net is the website. You can access Patreon that way. Golden Goat Guild is the handle on Instagram. In the link tree, you can likewise navigate over to Patreon. Subscribers, hang on. We will be right back.